Um, this morning we'll be continuing that in the 25th chapter of Genesis, um, verses 19 through 34 is what we're going to look at this morning. Um, if you want to follow along in one of those Bibles there in front of you, um, you'll find this on page 19. So remember what we've seen so far is that uh, God has has settled down in uh, calling uh, a particular family, Abraham and Sarah. And uh, it was going to be through them that this promised one is going to, to come through their family line, the promised rescuer, the promised restorer. Um, we saw that that is going to come through their son, Isaac. Last week we saw Abraham has died, and now God's promises are going to be passed through his son, Isaac. Now we're going to start to get into Isaac's line and how the promise continues to move forward as we're waiting and longing for when is the promised offspring? When is the promised one going to come? Uh, and so we continue it this, this week as we're learning more about how it is that God uh, is working to rescue and to save and how we experience uh, his work. So if you would, look in verse 19 of chapter 25 and follow along with me uh, all the way through verse, verse 34. So these are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah to be his wife. The daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean. And Isaac prayed to the Lord, to Yahweh, for his wife, because she was barren. And Yahweh granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, if, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of Yahweh. And Yahweh said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, Sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, Swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us your word. Um, the Holy Spirit, we need you. 
We need you to apply your word to our hearts to give us understanding um, so that we can follow you, trust you, and cling to Jesus. Do that this morning, we pray. God, my words, God, our hearts, as we look into this passage together. Uh, it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Uh, so if you remember last week as we looked at uh, Abraham's obituary, you could call it, uh, we, uh, we saw that there were several times where Abram, or Abraham tried in his own strength and through his own schemes to bring about the promises of God, to bring about this promised offspring. And what we saw through that passage last week is that what God is, was revealing and teaching to his people was that these promises are not going to come about through the schemes of, of man. Um, it's going to be through the, this sovereign, supernatural work of God, through his grace that he's at work in the world. Um, and so uh, we, we saw that last week, um, because remember, uh, it, through the other sons that Abraham had, one was through Hagar, remember, because they were struggling and wondering, hey, is Sarah really going to have a kid? Maybe uh, God's not going to provide. Maybe we need to take things into our own hands. And so Ishmael came about, and the Lord was like, no, through that effort, it's not gonna, the promise isn't going to come about that way. Later, we learned, we, this wasn't even written for us in the, uh, the previous account. We found out about it later in his obituary. Abraham had several other children by this other lady named Keturah. And God's saying, no, it's not going to be through them either. The promise isn't going to come about through your efforts and your schemes. It's going to come about through my work of uh, bringing about a child in the dead womb of Sarah. Well, it's interesting to see, though, in our passage this week, uh, that we're looking at Isaac. He has two children. Notice some similar things come about. Um, uh, uh, Rebecca was barren. Uh, um, Isaac, there's no, no evidence here that Isaac had ever had a time where he was wondering whether God was going to provide and he goes off and tries to, to bring about the promises through his own scheme. No, we see a consistent trust and relying on God. Isaac's waiting. He's praying. He's asking God to do a work to open up Rebecca's womb. In fact, we find out it actually took 20 years. If you look from Isaac was 40 years when he took uh, Rebecca as his wife in verse 20. And if you look over in verse 26, it was 60 years when he was born. So when, they, when the kids were born. So for 20 years, they waited and they prayed, trusting and relying on God. And God brings about a supernatural birth. He's the one who opens up Rebecca's womb and we find out that there's twins. But the end, so these kids come about not through the schemes of man, through reliance and trust in God. But something... Something happens, though. It's like there's this war going on in Rebecca's womb. In fact, notice what she says. Hey, why is this, if it's going to be like this, why is this even happening? You almost wonder if she's saying, hey, if I knew it was going to be this tough, I don't know if I really wanted to pray that I had children anyway, that this battle's going on inside of her. But look what, look what God says in verse 23. Is she in inquires of him. Two nations are in your womb, 
and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. So remember what God has said, that it's going to be through Abraham's line, through his offspring, that this promised uh, promised one is going to come about, that a nation will be formed and that God will use that people to bring blessing to the, to the world. But here, already at the beginning, before these kids are born, God is telling Rebecca, look, there's two nations within you, and they're going to be divided. They're not going to remain as one. In fact, as we, the, the story pans out, what we find out is that uh, this means that Esau, Esau's the, the older, the, the red, hairy one that came out, um, uh, the promise is not going to end up coming through his, his line. Um, but it's not just that. Remember, we've, we've experienced that before. Remember, uh, the promise didn't go through Ishmael, even though he was born from Abraham. The prom- promise didn't go through all these sons of Keturah, even though they were born from Abraham. But it went through Isaac. But here, we have two children, both born from the... the the couple of promise, Isaac and Rebecca, no schemes of man are involved, but God has already said prior to these kids being born that they're going to be divided. And that not only is Esau not going to be the one that the promise goes through, what God is saying here is that Esau actually personally will not experience the benefits of the promise. That's hard to wrestle with. Jacob's going to experience it, but Esau won't. How does, how does this tie in to God's promises to begin with? Will his mission be fulfilled? Is God still being faithful to his promises? What, what about his promise to Abraham? That it was going to be through his offspring that the world would be blessed. That he was going to be a God to Abraham and to his offspring after him. What is, what is happening here? What, what does this mean? Did, is he abandoning his promises to Isaac's line? Or what is going on? You see, Israel needed to understand and see. Remember, we saw that Moses was writing the book of Genesis to the people of Israel as they were in Egypt getting ready to leave. What they saw last week is that you're not going to need to, or two weeks ago, is it's not going to be through your uh, doing your own schemes to try to bring about the promises. It's going to be through you resting and relying on me. What we're beginning to see here is that just because you're, you're physically related to Abraham doesn't mean that you're guaranteed to be a personal one who personally experiences the benefits of this blessing, uh, a beneficiary of the promise. You can't rely just on your own relation to Abraham uh, to experience this, these restoring benefits of God's work in the world. You can't presume that just because you are related to Abraham, that that means now all of a sudden God is obligated to give you a benefit of the restoring work and rescuing work that he's doing. 
Um, last year, there was this incident. It's been come to be known as the Nut Rage incident. It happened in uh, New York on South Korean Airlines, or Korean Airlines. It's from South Korea. And the, the, one of the vice presidents of the company, who also happens to be the daughter of the CEO of the company, was on this flight. She was leaving uh, LaGuardia in New York and was getting ready to fly back to South Korea. And she was in first class, and they brought her some macadamia nuts. Well, um, they brought them to her like they bring them to everyone else, just in a bag. That was company policy. But she was very upset. She went into this outrage because she wanted her macadamia nuts delivered to her on a plate. And didn't they realize that she deserved because of who she was and who she was related to, to have her macadamia nuts delivered to her on a plate. And so she flipped out and she went nuts. So much so that they couldn't take off. The plane could not take off. Um, they were beginning to taxi when the, uh, when the nuts came out. She forced the chief uh, airline attendant to come before her in her seat, kneel down on his knees, and beg her forgiveness while she hit his knuckles with her tablet. And even then, she still refused to uh, fly on the flight with him, so they had to go back to the gate. She kicked him off of the plane, and then they took off and went back to Korea. Um, This has opened up the eyes of people in Korea, because there's in South Korea, there's long been this practice of, it's called nepotism, where... Um, not based on your, uh, your abilities in business, but based solely because of who you're related to, you get these positions of authority and control in these family-owned companies. And the country is beginning to say, maybe we need to rethink this, because what we're seeing it's producing is this attitude of entitlement, um, this attitude of presumption and arrogance where you begin to think more about yourself and look highly on yourself and begin to look down on other people because of who you are. Don't you know I deserve this because of who I'm related to? Uh, God is saying here, look, I don't practice nepotism. And Israel, you may be challenged uh, and tempted to think that just because you, by birth, are a member of the people of Israel, that that somehow now entitles you to the salvation work that I'm doing. And you begin to presume upon uh, your birth and your relationship to Abraham and thinking, now I owe you this salvation because of who you've been born, uh, because of who you've, you've descended to. Um, God is saying, by uh, what we're seeing in this passage is that Israel is being shown, and we're being shown, that no, just because you are physically related to Abraham, physically related to Isaac, doesn't mean that you're guaranteed to experience the, the beneficiary, uh, to be a beneficiary of the work that God is doing. Um, you cannot presume upon your birth. And Israel struggled with this. If we even see 
as it carries out through the rest of the uh, of the scriptures. This is something that Israel continues to struggle with, thinking that just because they're uh, uh, they are part of Israel, that therefore, of course, we're saved. Of course, we're part of uh, we're being rescued by God because we're related to Abraham, right? Regardless of their attitude towards God, their attitude towards him was one of presumption of, look what he owes us. I mean, we're, we're related to, to Abraham. This, this, though, isn't a struggle just for Israel. We need to be very careful that as God's people now, although none of us, I mean, maybe there's, there might be a couple of us in here who could trace your uh, genetic relation to Abraham, but most of us are Gentiles, those who have been brought in to the people of God through uh, through God's work in our lives. Now, those of us, maybe maybe your parents were believers and you've just grown up in the church. That's been what you've known. Um, We need to be very careful that we're not just assuming that because I grew up in the church and my parents are Christians, that means I'm automatically a Christian. I, I'm a part of God's people, right? That means I'm, I'm saved. I'm, an ex, I'm, I'm experiencing the benefits of God's work in my life. This passage would call us to, to actually question that assumption. God doesn't work and save just based on, off of who your, who your parents are, who you're related to. Who was your birth mother or father? It must be some other way that God is at work in the world. If so if it's if it's not through who we're physically related to that somehow um, solidifies us having an experience or a, a part in God's saving work in the world, then what what is it? Maybe maybe if it's not from physical descent, then Maybe it's because of us being good, moral, or more faithful than other people. Because obviously, if, if Esau wasn't a part of these, the, the beneficiary, if he didn't benefit from the saving promises of God, but Jacob did, maybe it was because Jacob was just a better, more faithful guy than, than Esau. I mean, look at, the, look at the passage. I mean, look at Esau. Um, in verse 32, notice what he, what he does. He's hungry. Um, he's being the firstborn. He has this birthright. And he comes in in verse 32 as, and says, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? And in verse 34, it tells us that in doing this and trading his birthright for some stew and bread, he despised his birthright. Now, a birthright at this time was the... Um, uh, your your rights as a firstborn, um, meaning that you inherited uh, a a double portion of what was being passed down from your uh, from your father. Um, in some instances, so let's say you had uh, um, uh, let's say you had four kids. Well, the the firstborn would receive a double portion. So that means that of the four portions, two of them go to the firstborn. The other two portions are divided up among the three, the other three kids. So now get this. If you have just two kids, the double portion goes to the firstborn. 
And in some instances, that leaves the secondborn with nothing. So think about, uh, at least from, from Esau's perspective here and how things normally work, um, think about what had been given and the promises that had been given to Isaac. What was his? This land that God promised to be at work in. The legacy that he had and being uh, um, one who had, who had been communicated, these, these promises to Abraham, these, the promises about how he was going to be at work in the world. Esau here, his response is, I don't care about none of it. I don't care about being connected or related really to this family at all. I don't really care about my birthright. Uh, to be identified with God and his people, the land in which he's going to be at work and, and to, to work out this great mission of rescue and restoration, I don't want to have anything to do with it. It's no good to me. It's worth nothing. In fact, I would rather have soup. I would rather trade a bowl of soup for being tied and connected to God's people. Esau has no heart for God. He has no desire to be connected to God. He has no desire to be a part of his people or at work, a part of God's work in the world. So, uh, it would maybe it would make sense that uh, that Esau he's not really a, that good of a guy he's not a faithful guy but look at look at Jacob is he really any better here we see Jacob is cooking some stew his brother comes in from the field his brother is hungry exhausted in great need of food and drink Jacob instead of responding and love and care and concern for his brother says, I'm going to use this as an opportunity to stick it to him. And I'm going to get what I think should be mine by deceiving him into giving up this birthright. In fact, if we continue to look at Jacob's line, or the, as the story unfolds, Jacob is known as a deceiver. Remember, that's uh, when, his, when he was coming out grabbing on to the heel of Esau, and they named him Jacob, one way you could understand of them grabbing his heel is, that, uh, is that's a descriptive term or a, um, uh, like a, a, a phrase that's used to describe a deceiver. He was known as that from the beginning, almost as coming out of the womb. He's trying to pull Esau back in so he can get out first. And if we, uh, we're going to see a lot from Jacob's story as we go through, that plays out. He's very deceptive. He's very manipulative. And he seems to be in it only for himself and the benefits that he can get out. Even here, it seems that Jacob is more interested in the benefits of these covenant promises than he is interested in knowing the God who has made the promises. <clears throat> so, it doesn't really seem like based on whether you're good or moral or faithful that that really seems to make a difference here and how one becomes a personally or individually an ex one who experiences the benefits of these promises in fact even if we look at the timing of this uh, word from the Lord Notice when he said this about the nations being divided, about one who is going to experience the benefits of the promises and one not. Back in verse 23, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. 
The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. Well, God made this promise, this prior to Jacob or Esau doing any acts, any good acts or any bad acts. He made this declaration before they were even born. So, even from this context, it would appear that not only does our individual experience of being one who experiences that rescuing and restoring work from God, it doesn't depend on who we're related to. It also doesn't seem to be connected to whether we're good or faithful. Because God made these promises prior to whether either one of these guys doing something good or bad from the beginning. But maybe maybe it, what God's doing is, maybe the way it works is God looks into the future. Maybe God is looking into the future and he looks at the tra- trajectory of these guys' lives. He looks at the future and how they would respond. And based on how they're going to respond in the future, God makes the determination of who's going to experience the benefits of his promises. I mean, because we see as it, as it plays out, um, uh, that it, it would seem that, that Jacob is one who ultimately responds faithfully. As we look at Esau's, the trajectory of his life, Esau is actually one who continues to reject the God. It's not just this birthright thing, but as his line continues on, Esau continues to be a rejecter of God and God's purposes and his intention and his work and his life. In fact, as we see uh, the nation of, that comes from Esau, the people of Edom, they are constantly ones who reject God's purposes in the world. Uh, they, uh, when Israel is leaving the promised land, the people of Edom, who are descended from Esau, doesn't even want Israel to pass through their land. They say, we're not going to help you. You've got to go the long way around. When Babylon, later on, attacks Jerusalem much later, the people of Edom cheer on Babylon, helping and hoping that the people of God will be destroyed. Later, when Jesus, the one that we ultimately will see, will be the promised one, when news of his birth comes along, a guy named Herod hears that a new king of the Jews has been born. He seeks to kill all the babies that had been born within the period of time that he thought this kid had come around. Herod, seeking to kill the promised one from the promised line. Herod was also an Edomite, one who came from the line of Esau. As we look to the future, oh, okay, well, it looks like Esau would not have responded well. Of course, God would have, he would not experience the benefits of God's promises. Um, uh, and Jacob, we see, although he struggles and he is a crook and a scoundrel, at the end of his life, Jacob seems to embrace and hope and trust in the Lord. Is that what was going on? God was looking forward into the future. And Israel and you and I need to know that that's how we experience the benefits of these promises. That if we, because we understand and know that it's, it's only through faith that we embrace and trust and hope in God. Is that what God's doing? Well, 
Remember, the context of Genesis has to shape our understanding of God's work in the world, of how His promises are being carried out and how we come to experience the benefits of those promises. What What have we seen so far? Remember back in Genesis 1. Who was the worker and actor there? It was God. Everything in chapter 1. God spoke and it happened. Whatever God said occurred. When God is bringing about His will, it is absolutely and necessarily accomplished. As we, we go through, um, God makes... Uh, and we saw that uh, when He placed Adam and Eve in the garden, He made this, this uh, promise to them. He's like, you can eat of any tree that I've given you, but... Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you do it, in that day, you will die. Now, did they die when they ate the tree? Do you remember? No, not physically. Adam and Eve continued to live. Remember, they got kicked out of the garden. In fact, they had many sons and daughters. Two of them killed, one of them killed the other one. We saw they didn't die. Was God lying? Was he just trying to trick them? No, we understood and saw that there, that that was a spiritual death. What died in them was their, uh, their desire and their longing for God and their desire to pursue Him. In fact, we see that death of a, a heart that doesn't want to have anything to do with God or His ways in the world passed on to everyone who descended from Adam and Eve. Remember, we saw this description in chapter 6 of the book of Genesis before right prior to the to Noah's to the flood coming with Noah Yahweh saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually that is describing to us the reality of our hearts of the experience of what it looks like to be human in this fallen world, that the wickedness of man is great, and that every intention of our heart, of the thoughts of our hearts, is only evil continually. That's one way to describe the death that occurred when Adam and Eve ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil when God told them not to. We also saw, though, that in verse 20, do you remember when... Uh, when Abraham tried to say that Sarah was his sister so that Abimelech wouldn't steal her. But Abimelech never did anything. He never harmed Sarah. He didn't, he didn't sleep with her. He didn't take her in to be his wife. And what did God say to Abimelech? It is I who kept you from sinning. So what we're beginning to see, the way that Genesis is shaping our understanding of the world, of who God is, is of being sovereign and good and trusting, of man being evil, and even in the midst of our evil and our our experience of sin in the world, the only good that we accomplish and the sin that we don't do is only because of God's work in our lives keeping us from sinning. God is just, righteous, good. We're dead. We're sinners. We're not longing for Him. This may be one way to look at it. This is a clip from um, uh, not this this summer's flood, but uh, 
last summer there was flooding in South Carolina. Um, and this is a clip of something that happened down there. I think this will be good to help us understand what's going on. Well, as we showed you at 5 o'clock, South Carolina residents are dealing with historic flooding right now. Parts of that state should begin to dry out today after days of heavy rain. And there is a very unusual disturbing problem that's popping up in the flooded area. Caskets from cemeteries have floated to the top of the rising flood water. Reporter Matt Alba shows us how one man took it upon himself to rescue at least one of those floating caskets. Why are you going in to get them? Somebody's family out there. This family's suffering. Here, their family out there popped up out of the ground. I think it's a human thing to do. So you're headed out right now? Right this second. All right, well, be careful. Wayne Reeves is a pastor at New Life Ministries in Somerville. And on Monday, on live TV, the Low Country watched as Reverend Reeves waded through water to retrieve the vault of a woman who had only been buried back in May. This family don't want to sit out here on the edge of this road all night long watching their family members bob in the water out there. That's just, that's just not who we are. But if that was my mom or my dad, I'd walk through hell and high water. Now, today it happens to be high water. Family of the deceased and church members watched from the roadway. Mixed feelings, disbelief, and relief at the same time. I mean, I just said, Lord, you know, protect him, you know, because I know they could be snakes out there or whatever have you, you know, with body being up there so long, you know, and the water been rising since Sunday. So, you know, we just said, Lord, you know, cover him. And, and he weren't afraid. So, you know, God sent him out there, you know, and, and it's very compassionate because she's actually my cousin. Dorchester County Sheriff's deputies retrieved a second casket from the flooded scene soon after. Family members say the two vaults belong to a husband and wife. I'm going to go and take a hot bath and wash a little bleach and take care of that. Mm -hmm. But this family's already hurt. They've already hurt enough. The cemetery here at Canaan United Methodist Church has been flooded ever since it began raining last week. Authorities from Dorchester County say they're going to assess all of the flood damage when this water recedes sometime this week. And floodwaters can spread toxic chemicals such as formaldehyde, which is used in embalming. Although this is a rare and disturbing occurrence, it's not... So, what would have happened... Remember, there are two caskets out there, right? What would have happened if that guy waited on the side of the river to see who was going to say from the casket, help me, help me, come and save me? Who was going to call for help or do something for help? How long would he have been sitting there? How long? Why? Both of them are dead. And if you're dead, what can you not do? You can't call for help, can you? So, what it took was this guy leaving and going out to pursue a dead body to bring it back and redeem it, right? That's what God is telling us is going on here. What is our state? We are dead. This, if, if we're thinking about God looking into the future of some time when we might call out to Him for help, for Him to save and redeem us, this is the picture of what that would look like. There's just caskets, dead people floating out there. We're spiritually dead, unable to call out to Him. In fact, that's the picture we see here in this passage. Esau is a guy who is living out the implications 
of a spiritually dead heart. The reason he rejects the birthright, the reason he rejects God and doesn't want to have anything to do with him is because his heart is dead. He is living life as as a fallen man. He has no intention, no desire to pursue after God. He doesn't want him. The evidence of Esau's life is evidence of a life lived apart from God. What we see in Jacob's life is one that God enters into, not because Jacob was any better. We see he's a deceiver and a crook. But God enters into Jacob's life. He reaches in and he saves a dead sinner, brings him to life in order that he is able then to to believe and hope and trust in him. Now we might wonder, well, is that fair? Is that fair? That God would enter into and save Jacob and leave Esau in his death. Remember what we've seen before. What what was just for God to do? What did we in our sin deserve? We deserved His, His judgment and His curse. The tougher question is not, why does God punish sin? The tougher question is, why in the world and how is God able to save sinners? Israel needed to realize this. As they are walking around, as they're passing through Edom on their way out of Egypt, there was no grounds whatsoever for Israel to say, those punk Edomites, of course they're going to reject us. And of course, we're God's chosen people because we're so much better than they are. We're more holy, more righteous. We got it. We understood his word. We figured it out. They could back to their entitlement and their presumptive attitudes begin to look down on the people of Edom and say, the reason we're God's people and the reason he's going to, we don't want to go through your land anyway, because God's going to use us and not you because of how we figured it out. God's saying, no, there is no ground whatsoever for you to have any sort of boasting or arrogance in this. Because what did both of you deserve? Judgment. Both of you deserve to remain in death and in spiritual bondage. But I, in my mercy, chose to extend my love in such a way that I would redeem and pursue and save you. Bringing you to life. Jacob, what we see here is not evidence of one who just got it. But the reason we, what we see going on in Jacob's life is Jacob is trusting and depending on God because we see God's work consistently, persistently pursuing, changing, working, and shaping Jacob. For those of us here, if you're, if you're one who has looked to Jesus and called out to him for mercy and help and you're resting in him alone, you have nothing to boast about. God did not save you Or me, because I'm any better than anybody else. The worst criminal that you read about or see in the news, your heart and my heart were no different than them. 
The only reason God is, is, and the only way that we can come to experience the saving, redeeming work and purposes of God in His heart is through what we confess today. Through the Holy Spirit's work, changing our hearts so that we would call out to and cling to Jesus. You see, part of that spiritual death is our, we have something inside us that I'm going to technically call our wanter. You, your heart wants what it wants, and you are free to want to go after and pursue anything you want. The problem is, is your wanter's broken, and you only want things that are contrary to God and His purposes. But what the promised hope of what the rescuer will do is He changes and He fixes your wanter, so that then you want the right things. You want. This redeeming, loving God who would send His Son to, to die to save sinners. Do you know Jesus? If you do, the confidence you have is that His work on your behalf has forever sufficiently redeemed and saved you. That should bring you to a place of deep humility. As we go out and we engage people here in our community, we should, that should move us not to arrogance, but should move us to great compassion. Because we have been saved by no work of our own, by no goodness that we have, by no foreseen faith, but solely, totally, completely the sovereign, good, gracious, loving work of God. It puts us in a place we should be chief worshipers proclaiming the goodness of this news should give us confidence to go out and share the gospel with others, knowing that our sovereign God has the power, the ability to the heart to work in to save dead, arrogant, hard-hearted sinners like you and me. This should fuel our worship. If you are an arrogant Christian... And you look down on other people because they don't, um, uh, they don't believe what you believe. They don't act like you act. Then I think it may be a good question for us to ask, do we really get the gospel? Because if there is anything in you that brings you any boasting to where you think you're better than someone else, like Israel was challenged, attempted to do, then we haven't gotten it. We need this passage. We need to understand that the work of God in this world is totally because of His free grace and His love and His mercy extended to sinners of which you and I are the worst. But now, because of His work, we're His beloved sons and daughters who He's invited into this mission to pursue the lost we don't experience the promises through the schemes of man. We don't experience the promises through our being born and connected to a family. It's by looking to Jesus in faith as He has changed our hearts in order to embrace and cling to Him. Those who are dead are brought to life through the work of the Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, forgive us for our arrogance. Forgive us for...